We are supported by RangeMe. As a startup brand owner, you're already wearing many hats. Product developer, packaging designer, logistics expert, and customer service representative, just to name a few. And if that wasn't enough, you still need to get your products in front of the right retail buyers. That's where RangeMe comes in. RangeMe empowers retail buyers to quickly and easily discover innovative products like yours, providing brands with unparalleled visibility to these influential buyers 24-7, 365, while you're hard at work on all of your other tasks, even while you sleep. And the best part? RangeMe is integrated into the eCRM product offering, which complements RangeMe's broad digital reach with highly curated face-to-face -face meetings. Together, they offer unmatched engagement opportunities for startup brands. Join RangeMe today and watch your products take center stage. It's free to set up a basic profile, and we have a special premium subscription offer for startup CPG members that includes three eCRM face-to-face meetings with important buyers. Visit rangeme.com backslash startup CPG to learn more. You know, if you're minority certified and or woman owned certified, it does unlock some opportunities to pitch for sure. It's not going to be the deciding factor, but it will get you a foot in the door. Start small, start a natural specialty, start local if you can. Ideally, you can drive to most of the stores and test out everything, pricing, flavors, merchandising, all of the above to figure out the right playbook for the next set of stores. If I'm on the dance floor and we're having fun or we're at a networking session and we meet and you got a product, that's probably a better chance for me to like pay attention and have a conversation and get to know somebody. That's part of my reason for going to the show is thanking the brands for supporting us. Like, you know, that's how we all make it work. Welcome everybody to the Startup CPG Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Scharf, and I've got an exciting bonus episode for you today about how to get into retail. This is a webinar we hosted with two brands I think have done an excellent job blasting into retail over the last few years, as well as a buyer who has awesome tips for how to get noticed by retailers. These are super tactical tips that you'll hear, including which retailers Mitch from Earthfair follows on Instagram when he wants to discover new products. One note, the audio is not perfect, but I didn't want that to stop us from sharing this episode with you because I think it's really great content. Thank you so much to our guests, Clara from Unite Foods, Paul from Ourobora, and Mitch Orland from Earthfair. Hope you all enjoy. Thank you to everyone for joining. I am really passionate about this topic. And we did kind of a first run of this at Expo East. And it was so great. We got such cool feedback from it that I really was excited to repeat it again. And so the topic is getting into retail. And I'm excited to feature people who, you know, I've been an operator, I've run a brand, and these are some of the people that I respect the most who I feel like I learned from a lot. And, you know, not just the broad strokes of how to do it, but tactically. How do you actually do it? Like, who do you talk to? How'd you get their attention? What was the thing that you told them that, you know, was really important to change your trajectory and get on shelf? Because for me, the first year is so hard breaking the seal, breaking the seal with retailers, distributors, getting some momentum going, like getting to the point, I think, where people feel like your brand is a thing, you know, I feel like it's just so hard. And so we've had one change today. So unfortunately, Matt from Chlorophyll Water, like many people right now, is under the weather. But we are really lucky to have Paul from Ouroboros joining in his stead. 
So each of the people here is is here for a reason. Um, Clara with Unite Food has have just seen her kind of do everything, and like I learn about distributors I've never even heard of from her that turn out to be really important ones. So really excited to have her here. Paul with Orbora. Just when I moved to LA and I just saw Orbora blanketed everywhere, like all the tastemaker retailers that I wanted to be in. And ones I don't even understand how you get to, like the Aviator Nation store on Abbott Kitty, like somehow he's just sitting pretty with a beautiful cooler there. So really excited to have him here. And I know a lot of you guys have followed his journey as well. And then we're also really excited to have Mitch from Earthfair on here who can give us then the other side of that perspective of like, okay, yes, when all of you come at me and try to get my attention to be in this amazing store, here's what that looks like. And, you know, tips for that. So I thought maybe we could just, before we get started, do a quick round of introductions. And if everyone, especially the brands can share for, so people understand, like, what does your distribution look like? Or, you know, how did it look like in the early parts? Do you want to kick us off, Clara? Sure. I'm Clara. I'm the founder and CEO of Unite, globally inspired protein bars. A lot of people know us by our churro flavor, but we've got baklava, peanut butter and jelly, Mexican hot chocolate, lots of really fun flavors, bubble tea. Launched in March of 2020, I was not from the food industry. This is my very first food enterprise. I was in rough plumbing and plumbing and hardware distribution for 17 years. Totally different industry, but happy to be here and start CBG. I'll just give a shout out to Daniel. Was I didn't know one person in the food industry when I started, and I met Daniel, and that was my lucky day. You got introduced to startup CBG and learned a lot in the Slack channel there. Thank you. That was my lucky day as well. And yeah, really excited to have you here. Thank you, Clara. Paul, do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a sparkling water brand called Ourobora. We sell in natural and conventional retailers across the country. We make delightful, different craft versions of hopefully your favorite sparkling water flavors um, and a few that you haven't tried before. And we started this brand about four years ago and learned a lot about early stage distribution. So happy to share. All right. Really impressive distribution in four years. I'm sure you guys have seen Ourobora pretty much everywhere, whatever retailer you're in. Thank you, Paul. I know Paul, I think, has to run after 30 minutes. Thank you for joining us last minute. So I'll probably try to kick off with a couple questions for you. And Mr. Mitch, I love your hat. And I also, when I saw you had a cool hat, I also felt like I should bring one of my own Start um, CPG captain's hat for our yacht party that's happening on this nice. Friday here in the marina in LA. We're doing a 100-person yacht party with a bunch of retailers around Nosh Live. All right. Hey, I'm Mitch. I work for Earth Fair, the healthy supermarket. If you don't know us, we have 18 stores, mostly in the Southeast. We have a very strict food philosophy. We were one of the first supermarkets to ban high fructose corn syrup, hydrogenated oils, and we stay on top of it. I've been with Earth Fair on and off for about 20 years. I've also had my own restaurant, my own consulting business, where I've been on the other side, a fractional sales VP, COO, and I've worked for most of the Supernaturals, uh, Whole Foods, Fresh Time, Wild Oats, if you remember them, Sunflower, if you remember them. They're now Sprouts and Whole Foods. Yeah, so really excited to be here. I love helping brands. It's really fun, and it's partly why I'm in the business. All right, great. Thank you for joining. And I also just realized that all three of these guests have also been guests on our Startup CPG podcast. So if you want to do a deep dive for any of them, definitely check out the episode history. Clara was one of the first. Paul did an amazing one, touched on some really cool topics around fundraising, especially that were super interesting and Mitch did one recently. Cool. So 
I'm just going to kick us off, um, starting with a little bit more on the brands, and then a little bit later on, we'll come back in for the retailer perspective. So, Paul, maybe I'll start with you. Can you talk us through, like, going back, how did you get your early retailers? What did you do? Who did you talk to? You know, what was your strategy? How did it work? I had no strategy early on, which is the worst strategy. So you definitely should have a strategy. We started at a retailer that I lived maybe 200 yards from at the end of my block. And it, thankfully for me, it was an amazing natural grocery store. And they were excited to try a new product and to be kind of a, a guinea pig account for us. And we could figure out pricing and which flavors sell the best. And is it better to do promote deep, less frequently or shallow, more frequently. And we got to play with all of those things and we learned a lot from them. So that's probably my number one point of advice is if you can start with one retailer or better yet, you know, a region of a chain, you know, Earth Fair would be an amazing one if you're in the Southeast. You get to learn all of the things before it becomes a very drastic measure. You know, if you promote an 18 Earth Fairs and you promote wrong and you've given away the farm, not as big a deal. If you do the same promotion in 1800 targets, you're probably updating your resume. So a great way of starting small and learning a lot. And there's a reason everyone starts their brand in natural and specialty. It's not just because often the new thing is a natural or specialty type product. It's often because those are the retailers that are most interested in trying a new flavor or a new ingredient or frankly, just a new product in general. So start small, start a natural specialty, start local if you can. Ideally, you can drive to most of the stores and test out everything, pricing, flavors, merchandising, all of the above to figure out the right playbook for the next set of stores. Awesome. Can you just take us a little bit further of the journey of like, okay, so you started locally and tested and then what are some of the initial ones that you managed to unlock and how did you do that? I mean, yeah, when I moved here to LA like a year and a half ago, I was just seeing you everywhere. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to hear that. One, I'll say I started selling out of my Subaru for about six months. So that was like the best thing we did. And it was just by necessity. You know, if you want to sell to a big national distributor, if it, you're a natural, it might be Kehi and UNFI. If you're selling a convenience product, it might be McLean's or, or Cormark. But before you can sell to those guys, hey, they need a big, chunky national chain or at least a big, chunky regional chain. We didn't have either of those. If you want to sell to a local DSD, direct store distributor, you generally need to build up a book of accounts that's 40 or 50 stores. So for the first 40 to 50 stores, I was delivering myself and merchandising on the shelf and doing demos where needed, et cetera. What was great about that is I happen to live in the Bay Area. So of those 40 to 50 stores, the distributors I then talked to sold to most of them because they were natural specialty distributors. So in the Bay Area, that was Berkeley Bowl or Good Earth or gosh, insert the blank, all of the independent stores that have three or four locations, Oliver's in Napa. And it was talking to managers. What's so great about those stores is you can sell in on a Tuesday morning and be on the shelf Tuesday afternoon. Like that's very rare and that's amazing because you can drop off the invoice, keep all the margin yourself. Yes, you're going to have to you know, expense your gas, but for the most part, you can run a little profitable business, assuming your margins are decent, and then work your way into a local DSD that's then following you as you sell. And you can sell in and the next day they can drop it off and then eventually graduate into a big national chain and then start working with some of the bigger distributors. So I'd say that is generally the path. And if you're not interested in selling out of the back of your car, this probably isn't the industry for you. <laughs> That's amazing. And then, and so you um, started by hand, basically delivering out of your Subaru to 40 or 50 stores to the point where you got a local DSD interested. They took over exactly. then the fulfillment. And then from that point, were you going into other regions to try to open those up? Or, you know, when did you try to unlock the, the national distributors national and, uh, and yeah. bigger chains? 
I would say some of this is a little specific to fast moving consumer goods. So beverage, salty snacks, candies, et cetera, where you can sell to a network of DSDs from coast to coast and never sell to McLean, Portmark, Cahead, UNFI, US Foods, Shamrock, et cetera. That's possible. And I can name big companies that have done that. You know, Five Hour Energy sells to like a thousand distributors and they do billion plus dollars in sales. So it's totally possible. If you're selling a sauce or you know any sort of condiment, anything that's going to move fewer than two units per scooper store per week, you're probably going to need a big national distributor at some point. So I'll say this advice, all that withstanding, it seemed to me that beverages did one of two things. They either started locally and they sold everywhere. And if you want to read about that, Mark Rampola, the guy that started Zico Coconut Water, wrote an excellent book about it where he's sold to every kind of store, yoga studio, grocery store, liquor store, C-store, bodega, on the island of Manhattan. So he got very deep geographically and was not interested in Brooklyn or Queens or Bronx or just Manhattan. Or the opposite is folks that just sell via channel. I have another book. If you want to read about Honest T's journey, Seth Goldman did a great job. And he sold all over the country, but in the natural channel. So it felt like, okay, I had to choose. Do I want to pick one channel regardless of geography or one geography regardless of channel? We ended up doing kind of a hybrid of the middle. And maybe the best example there is La Colombe's kind of foam drink lattes, where locally we were sold in conventional and in natural, and in some instances, sea store. Nationally, we just picked natural. So we would sell to Earth Fair in the Southeast, and we would sell to Fresh Time in the Midwest, and Sprouts in the Sun Belt, and Whole Foods everywhere, and Thrive Market everywhere before we layered on conventional. But I had no problem selling a conventional down the block. Because the truth is I was down the block and I could merchandise it and give disproportionate love to those conventional stores. So that's how we chose to do it. And then obviously, as you sell into the fresh time sprouts, Cahies or sprouts, Whole Foods, Earth Fairs, you eventually get introduced to UNFI or Cahie and can sell nationally. Makes sense. And last question before I switch over to Clara for a bit is yeah. where were you when you got to the point where you were pitching, you know, fresh time and how did you actually do that? Did you f find the buyers on LinkedIn or you had a broker or, yeah. you know, what was it about your story that you really needed to highlight to them to start getting those big chains? I would say the difference between the local chain and the next level up, I think this is how your selling story should sound. The local chain, I mean, I remember literally saying, my name is Paul. I live right over there. I'll be here five times a day. You should buy it from me because it's an exciting product. And I buy my groceries here and like, Etc. It just had to do with me. And as delightful as I am, or you are listening to this, like it eventually needs to become about the product. And I think to the fresh times and earth fairs and whole foods and sprouts, it becomes about the product. And this is kind of the second stage of selling. It's not about you. It's about the product. The third stage of selling that you begin to see at those larger chains and then moving to conventional is it actually has less to do with you or the product so much as it does like, what are you doing to the category? What dollars are you putting into my pocket? I could care less if it's lemon or lime or watermelon or chocolate or vanilla. I want to know what are you changing when I add you to the set? And that's kind of the third level is what are you doing to the category? And then maybe the fourth and final level, and this is what the big conglomerates do so well. How are you changing my incremental profit, my being the buyer? You know, hey, you're the buyer at Walmart or you're the buyer at Target. Let me tell you how what I'm going to sell you will change the bonus you bring home to your family on Christmas Eve. And that's like the fourth and final level that I have yet to achieve. But that's kind of what the story <laughs> is. And obviously along the way, it's still you and it's still the same product. But 
it's kind of just knowing your audience and what they need to hear. Yeah, it looks like that resonates with Clara. I know, so I see nodding along here. How are you showing the incremental value that you're giving to the category? What are you using specific kinds of data or feedback? We are. Yeah, we use spins quite a bit. What's very helpful for us is our data is kind of easy to say, i.e., hey, we're, I'll just do this for like being very explicit of, hey, we're twice the price of insert the blank competitor. If we move half as many units, you're going to make the same number of dollars as a retailer, except you're making more dollars off us because you don't have to send staff to change it over twice as often. And we're not going to ding you in all these different ways. So for us, it ends up being a clear, hey, if we move half as much at twice the price, you make more money. The truth is, I think we'll move roughly the same amount if you give me two years at twice the price. And if you're an emerging brand that's kind of selling to the premium set, you probably have a similar economic game going on. And thankfully, everything in the grocery store at Earth Fair or at Target, regardless, is getting more premium because there is just a wide variety of products that people will buy. That is the tide that's lifting every boat listening to this. Yeah, very well said. And who was doing the selling? You were doing it, you had a broker, yes. you had, and then at some point you brought on some additional sales help or a broker. Correct. Yeah, I'd say, you know, a lot of chains, you can, you know, Daniel just said, like you can hit them up on LinkedIn yourself, you can find their email, you can go to a show and meet them. Some of them will only communicate with brokers, particularly the larger ones. As you get larger, they'll only communicate with brokers. And some of them will only communicate with specific brokers. You know, hey, if you want to sell to Target, we only talk to these 10 humans. These 10 humans curate all of the brands in our set, and they do that because they have limited number of time. So for me, the local ones should be you. You're the one delivering from the Subaru, should be you. As you get into, sometimes you can find local brokers that can kind of maximize your force. I would usually recommend go find another version of you that can 2X it. And then as you get into regional chains like Earthfair, it's probably time to find a early stage broker that knows those specific regional chains of a specific channel. And then as you become a national sales company, you can find a broker for natural, a broker for convenience, a broker for conventional, et cetera. Okay, cool. And then, sorry, I'm going to ask one more question because I know we're going to lose you pretty soon. So let's say like slate wiped clean, all of a sudden yep. your products are gone. You have to start over with your same product. What would you do now? I know I've heard some incredible lessons learned from you over various channels, but let's say just wipe clean. Okay, go. Mm -hmm. You have a certain amount of funding. What's your strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. I gave those three framings, the La Colombe, Zico, Honesty framing. If I had to pick again, there's a brilliance of the Zico framing of just staying geographically. You can run a really profitable local CPG business. Everyone listening to this probably knows a local CPG business, or maybe you don't even know it's local, but it's all over every store, regardless of channel, and you won't find it two states to your left or right. I would probably lean that way if I had a higher margin product, higher margin in terms of dollars, not in terms of percentage. If I had this same product margin, it's a low priced item because it's a sparkling water. It's not champagne or a cut of ribeye. I'd probably stick with, hey, let's just sell to natural. And I'd probably try to pick off a few of the natural chains. Like, can I just sell to Sprouts for a while? Can I just sell to Whole Foods and learn all I can for a year and then have amazing data to go sell elsewhere? That's if I could do it again. And of course, there's a huge devil's advocate is, yeah, but you can't just twiddle your thumbs and wait for a yes from someone at Whole Foods or someone at Sprouts, which is why I did it the way I did. But if I had my pick of the litter, that's what I would do again. All right. Perfect. Paul, thank you. That was amazing. Hey listeners, are you working on your email and SMS marketing strategy and not getting the results you're looking for? Or do you wish you had a little more time and a lot more resources? Don't worry, Strategy Maven has your back. Building a successful strategy is no easy task, but their mavens or experts will help you establish an email and SMS marketing program that will attract, engage, and retain customers to help grow your brand. 
SMA is the perfect partner for you if you're not getting the results you're looking for, or your overall email attributed revenue is less than 30%, or you have way too much on your plate and not enough resources, or you started with another agency or freelancer and they dropped the ball. Strategy Maven Agency treats your brand as if it was their own. They provide the expertise and support your business needs to scale and thrive. Visit strategymavenagency.com to get started with a free consultation. And don't forget to mention Startup CPG. Um, all right, Clara, all the same questions, <laughs> basically. Just to <laughs> kind of run back to the beginning of, yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what it was like in the early days, just kind of starting out up at the point where you really started to pick up momentum and, and how did you do it from a sales perspective? Yeah, I mean, just like Paul, I thought like that was going to be my strategy of start local and really concentric circles around home. And I'm here in Southern California in Orange County. And I launched in March of 2020. So you can imagine in March of 2020, right on the heels of this pandemic, there were no buyers taking meetings. They were more worried about keeping toilet paper on their shelves and keeping product coming in than placing a new brand or doing a reset. So my entire category didn't even reset for like a couple of years. And it was a really interesting, crazy time. And so people would tell me, I remember Daniel, like, oh, Claire, I'm so sorry you launched during this. And I was like, well, I mean, everybody's going through it. It's not just me. And it's, I think it's like how you view adversity. And I walked it into a local grocery store. So literally walked it into Bristol Farms where I did all my grocery shopping. And I knew the store manager because we went to the same church. <laughs> and I said, hey, Rick, could you introduce me to the, you know, like, how do I get my product onto your shelf? I knew nothing about distribution. And, and he introduced me to a lady who did their local buying. And since I was a local mom and they wanted to support local people, they brought it in to five stores as a local vendor. And they gave me this great set right in the front of the store. And I remember going to that meeting and like she was in a mask. I was in a mask. I'm handing her a bar to try. And we're, it's outside. It, you know, it comes down to a data story. And that first launch, and that was like in June or July of 2020, that first launch gave me a data story. Those five stores sold 17 units per store per week, which is like an incredible amount of units for a new product, but it was because it was like spread of the store end cap. And then I could use that story to sell my next customer. And my next customer happened to be the world's largest retailer, Walmart. <laughs> so I went from, okay, I'm just going to start in concentric circles to while well, nobody else is taking appointments and Walmart wants my product. So yeah, let's go ahead and launch an 850 Walmart stores and be national from year one, right? And so we just had to take the opportunity that was in front of us. I think there's theory and then there's practice. I think you can plan, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna execute it this way. But then as the opportunities come up, sometimes the time period you launch, when you launch, you know, it will all affect how you grow your business and in with which distributors and in which ways. And it's all about data stories and it continues to be about data stories, exactly what Paul hit on. How are you adding incremental revenue to the set? How are you? bringing in a new buyer? How are you different? Like, don't be just a me too, because that's just really boring. And my favorite selling story of all time happened at Expo East, being on this stage, talking about this topic. And Mitch leaned over and said, hey, we should probably carry you at Earth Fair. And I said, I agree. And followed up after that show. And now we're in Earth Fair. So that was the yeah. best selling story yeah. of my life will be my favorite selling story. <laughs> The like, you know, pitch and secure business on the stage at Expo East is pretty fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Embodying what we were talking about, about the importance of networking and like, you know, using every opportunity. That's amazing. And so how did you get the Walmart opportunity, by the way, the first year? 
it was literally being in the right place at the right time. Met a scout for Walmart who introduced me to the buyer. And she said, I don't have any influence over this, but I will introduce you to the buyer and the buyer, the product. He liked that it was different. He liked that it was unique. We were about bringing diversity into wellness, which is something that he was passionate about and he wanted to give us a shot. And we had to come up with a new configuration. And so there are like ways that you bet. They wanted multi-packs. And so we didn't have a multi-pack developed yet. But of course, you say yes and you figure it out after. And that was, it gave brand credibility to the brand. So a brand new brand, a founder who'd never done anything in food. And when you can achieve that on time and in full that Walmart demands, and you can execute flawlessly and not have a back order during the most significant supply chain shortages of our time over two years and be in full and be on time and have the right margins, you know, it gave all the other retailers great comfort that we could execute. One thing that strikes me is I think both you and Paul, you both have very differentiated products that you know from the branding. You see it. You're like, wow, that's different. Like the first time I saw your churro bar, I lit up like, I know I'm going to love that. That looks so good. And the Ourobora design is just, it's so beautiful and out there. You know, how much do you think the branding played a part for you? Then I'll be interested in what Paul thinks about that too. Huge. I think it cannot be underestimated. Like the P is in CPG is packaging. And so if your packaging isn't a five out of five, then you better just like go back to the dry board. And I always talk about this. There's always people that want to go to 99 designs or, you know, some inexpensive fit. And that's fine if you're just testing it in your local region. But if you want to be a national brand, you better have a national looking packaging design. I'd say the same. Yeah, I think sometimes investors frame this, you know, we'd much rather invest in an amazing product that everyone loves that's in a brown paper bag than a product no one likes in a beautiful shiny box, which is kind of a silly way of saying it. It's like, hey, why not just do both? And for us, I'd say your packaging is the only thing that allows you to multiply efforts without you there. You know, like I live on the West Coast. By the time stores open at 8 or 9 a.m., I'm still in bed, but our packaging is sitting there on the shelf yelling out what we're about. It feels like it'd be a crazy thing to launch without packaging that you felt like was doing all of the right jobs. It's not that hard to do. The cost of a great graphic designer is coming down, down, down. So it's an easy thing to do right. Why do it wrong? And it's the only equalizer on shelf. When you're mm-hmm. looking at two products, it's you have the equal opportunity to capture that consumer's attention. Like, you know, you might be going up against Nestle, but it doesn't matter because the consumer can look at both of your packaging the same. Awesome. So Clara, um, actually one comment that came in is about kind of like, oh, and she, like, are you afraid to start with someone like Walmart that early? Or I've seen the submission documents for Walmart. Like there are some big choices that you have to make there with incredibly important repercussions, financial implications. How did you think about that and decide if you were ready to shoot for it from a financial perspective? It's exactly the right thing. I said, like, you know, we have to shoot this shot, right? And at the end of the day, like I wanted my bars to be for as many people as possible. And Walmart was the best retailer to make that a possibility, right? I wanted it to be accessible. And I still want that, right? And I want as many people to be able to afford to buy Unite and try Unite as possible. And so Walmart, you know, conceptually really fit. You have to have really good grasp on logistics and supply chain, which I managed a business that had 8,000 products with five distribution centers for 17 years. So I knew how to do that. I knew how to get it on time and in full. I knew how to hire the right logistics partner to help me do that. And so I think those chargebacks and deductions are really around not knowing how to get your product to the DC intact in full 
in the right quantities. And I think if you can figure out logistics and supply chain, you're halfway there. And then, you know, having a partner in the manufacturing side that was already SQS certified, had all those check boxes. And I did that day one. Like I didn't do it, start with random command and then get to that. We did it from day one because I knew where I wanted to take this brand. And so I think if you reverse engineer that and like you select the right partners ahead of time, it deep risks it a little bit, but it's definitely a risk. With large retail, there's a lot more marketing expectation and spend to move that velocity. It's a gamble. But for me, like I said, it was about building our brand awareness really quickly. And, you know, within the first year to be in all 50 states was really a milestone accomplishment. That is amazing. And did you, were there any downsides to it that you saw? I know some people worry about like the impact on pricing for other retailers or some natural channel chains (laughs) reportedly will take you if you're in Walmart. Yeah. And then that level was like always the risk, right? Like, well, they have 5,000 stores and your chain has like, I don't know how many stores, but like, I'll take that risk. So it just, you know, if you eventually you want to end up there and I think that's backwards thinking, but there are downsides. I mean, you have to be able to have the capital to support it. You have to be able to have the time and space to support it. Oh, Paul just jumped off. And so, you know, it can be very risky. And then, so how did you go about getting the other chains after that? I mean, I, you know, from the outside, it looks like they all just fell like dominoes, but I know there's a lot of work that goes into that. So, you know, how were you contacting them? How were you reaching out to them? How did you do your networking? What was the story you were telling and how are you doing it basically? Story is very important. So very early on, you know, I thought I would hire like a VP of sales to help me. And then I looked at kind of like the salary requirements of a VP of sales. And I was like, there's no way that I can afford that and all the travel and all the admin work and all the things at an early stage. So I looked around to see if there was like some kind of solution. And I found a really great sales team that was like national where they, it wasn't a broker, but it was the sales people and they're called FDM sales is who we use. And they were great because they had reps in all the accounts that we wanted to get into and they would follow the review calendars and help me get appointments. And I like to pitch. So I'm, some founders don't, aren't that great at pitching. And so maybe they don't pitch, but I love to pitch and tell our story. And so it's just one at a time. And, you know, we were lucky to get Kiki and UNFI to accept us and open up distribution for us kind of at a very early stage. And that helped, you know, that kind of chicken and egg thing where, you know, you need an anchor before you get distributor or you need a distributor, you know. How did you get in touch with them? Like, because a lot of people are like, they have trouble hearing back from them and, you know, they get so many applications. How did you actually get on their radar? So FDM got us the appointments and got us kind of started there in that process. And then from then it was like, you know, you have to act quick to capture a national retailer pretty quickly. And so we were lucky that we're with KE and for KE, they serve Meyer and HEB and Sprouts and we're in all those stores. And so when you have relationships with their larger anchors, then it's easier. Okay, awesome. One of the questions that came in from Sabrina is, did you have or need a minority certificate as a women-founded brand? And, you know, how did, did that help you um, with some opportunities? Absolutely. You know, if you're minority certified and or woman-owned certified, it does unlock some opportunities to pitch for sure. It's not going to be the deciding factor, but it will get you a foot in the door. Great. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And then um, just to round off with some of the same questions I asked Paul at the end there, and then I'm going to come to Mitch. All right. If you wipe the slate clean... Like starting over, same product, same story, different environment now, right? A little bit like where the resets are actually happening, not in the middle of the pandemic. What do you do? I think I would have formulated more from a cost of goods perspective and really understood margin 
like when I formulated my product, I did it in my kitchen. So it was like, what would I put in it? It wasn't in a lab. So it was like very expensive ingredients, right? And that's what I formulated with because those are the highest quality ingredients, like almond butter, you know, or really high quality proteins. And I realized now that major CPG companies, they formulate from a cost perspective first. Like this can't be more than X cents per dollar, right? And so it's a different, you know, tactic to how you get there. So I think cost of goods is like something to pay attention to from the very, very beginning and, and aim for the highest amount of margin that you can get early on. And knowing what you know now, would you have just gone right for a formulator or flavor house or something? Like, you know, flavor for people, for anyone who's not aware, there are flavor houses. Some will do your product development for free, but then you have to buy the flavors from them forever unless you reformulate. And then, but then there are also formulators you can hire to develop your product for a fee. So what do you think you would do in retrospect, Clara? Yeah, I would have worked with a formulator to really, you know, help me understand because I was like, how hard can this be? You just mix these things in a Cuisinart and you make a bar. So there's a lot more to it where the shelf life and everything else that you want to maximize. So I would have invested in a formulator earlier on. Awesome. Okay. Do you know how much inventory you have? What about open sales orders or when the next supply shipment is coming in? Sin7's inventory management software will give you a real-time picture of everything you make and sell across systems, channels, and marketplaces. Ranked as the number one inventory management software by Forbes, U.S. News, and this community, Sin7 helps small CPG companies grow quickly and efficiently through intelligence, automation, and connection. With over 700 integrations to accounting tools like QuickBooks, shopping carts like Shopify, and marketplaces like Amazon, you'll have all the scale with zero complexity. Try out Sin7 Core inventory management software for yourself with a 14-day free trial. Visit sin7.com slash startupcpg to learn more and start your free trial today. That's C-I-N, the number seven, dot com backslash startupcpg, or check out the link in the show notes. So, and then also just because we have Expo West coming up, what's your strategy around trade shows? How do you get ready for them? How do you try to make the most of them? I love trade shows. I think that they're the best ROI on marketing spend. I'm super excited to be, you know, at Expo West. It'll be my third Expo West. And for me, it's about capturing the most amount of value while you're there. Like, I can't tell you how many expos I walk around and people are on their phones or distracted in their booth. And like, you're missing it. You're missing the whole point of being there. Like your job is to engage with everybody that walks up to your booth and like be really badge agnostic and create genuine connections. And I can't tell you how many press things that that's resulted in, how many points of new distribution that's resulted in, new major retailers brought on just by being engaged with people that walk up to your booth and really, you know, not just like scanning to see are they a buyer or not, and then just ignoring them if they're not. I love it. I think you've probably heard my trade show tips before, but I'm never behind the booth even. I'm out in front of the booth. I'm flagging everyone down. At the end of the day, my eyes are still moving left to right in my sleep because I'm just badge hunting the whole time and trying to talk to as many people as possible. So yeah, for I definitely agree with making the most of it. Cool. Okay. So Mitch, thank you very much for your patience. And I, I know you always like kind of hearing from the brand perspective also. So yeah, I mean, I guess just starting right out. Yeah. How are brands like Paul's in the early stages and Clara when she was just beginning? How are they getting your attention if they're not lucky enough to be on a panel with you? Well, I guess one thing I neglected, and I'll take a step back, but I think it'll help you understand how to work with Earthfair 
A lot of people don't know, but Earth Fair was started, Dinner for the Earth, in 1975 in a 1,200-square-foot store in downtown Asheville by Roger DeRoe. And it took a long time to grow, but then, you know, I was with them previously, three venture groups bought into Earth Fair. It went south pretty bad in the CPG industry from five, eight years ago. Earth Fair didn't have the best taste in people's mouth, and they went bankrupt. So actually, we're a scrappy startup. A lot of people don't realize we've been like Claire 2020s when we started, bought out of bankruptcy with no stores. And we went from zero to nine zeros pretty fast. So we got 18 stores now, but we're lean and mean. I got seven people on my team as buyers. We're super scrappy. We like to have fun. I got some great people. They all came from the store which is super important to me. We're a store first company and we like to play. Like we have the ability to turn on a dime, you know? So we're a good retailer to work with and we anchor Atlanta. So we can open up for people, which we love to do. We, we especially love watching the good West Coast brands and get them first on the East. So getting into Earth Fair, was that your original question? Yeah, I mean, that's incredible to hear. And, and, th and thank you on behalf of everybody because there's... Nothing quite like a really great retailer who also is excited to anchor you into distribution because that's how we get going. Yeah. So how are the successful brands getting on your radar? How are they reaching out to you? What are they doing that catches your attention? There's multiple ways, obviously, you know, and grocery kind of has their way, you know, where wellness supplements has their way, our fresh departments, you might catch them differently. But for me personally, I actually look at Instagram is kind of funny, but you know, people could put on a nice show on Instagram, but it kind of shows me what's hot, what pe who's vibing, who's got a good packaging as you were talking about. Reminds me of like Steve Jobs and the Apple boxes even are cool. Like our grocery guys, super tech, savvy, Zach and Jaden, they look at spins, Southwest brands, who's coming on, how do we get them first? I'll go walk farmer's markets in Asheville. We're lucky to have some great brands. And I'm, you know, we like to say farmer's market to shelf. We've done it in eight weeks. So the other piece is, you know, finding a champion, I find is really important. Like who's going to champion your brand to me? Find somebody. A great example for us lately. I don't know if you guys know Jambar, if they're part of Startup CBG, but the woman who founded Power Bar started a new company that supports musicians. But she had a representative that actually was in Asheville. I'm on the board of Asheville Community Yoga, a nonprofit yoga studio, pay what you will. Adam started coming and just dropping bars and, you know, giving them for free, hundreds of bars at a time, and they were selling them and make money. He started coming to the yoga classes. My buddy who's the director called me up, told me about Adam. I'm like, okay, I got to meet this guy. He came to the store. He was ready. He was delivering direct. I said, let's put you in the small local distributor. And why he was so successful for us is Adam shows up at every event we have. He's local, the runs, the re-grand openings, the holiday event. He's there with a booth passing out jam bars. So he is a favorite partner now of ours. Um, so, you know, there's the, we got lucky with Claire. There's the really cool brands. And then there's... You know, LinkedIn doesn't really work for me and my team so much. There's so much people reaching out. But if you got someone from LinkedIn that I know that reaches out to me about you, you have a much better chance of getting a reply. 
That's pretty interesting for me to hear. Um, like what? So when that happens, would it tip? Who's the kind of person that you'll listen to if they're telling you a brand is great? It's like another brand that you already work with that you like, or it's another buyer, or you know, who who are the kinds of because that's super interesting advice to hear. Is like you know maybe try to find somebody who already has a good relationship with you to see if they're willing to advocate mm-hmm. on their behalf. So yeah, like who are those kinds yeah. of people where you've seen it work? Yeah, for me, like I know a lot of retailers in the industry i've worked with a lot of people so i talk a lot to you know our competition a little but also not we don't compete with quite a few chains out there especially west coast so that's super helpful i'm doing great in fresh time i'm good friends with jonathan over there we only compete in one market he sends me a buzz and i'm like okay check it out and there could be someone as little as like i said the you know someone who i'm familiar with is I'm on a nonprofit board with them, you know, so it's kind of anyone who you can get a personal in with. They probably, a lot of people I know probably buy your guys' products or want to. So that's a good way to do it with finding somebody and other brands too. Like if I still haven't heard your story while you left, but Daniel, if he come over and said, Hey, this brand's cool. I would look at them because now we, we have a relationship. So it's about building relationships and, you know, being creative too at the same time like we like fun we like creativity we like people that aren't aren't scared a little bit so don't be shy but don't be rude (laughs) i love it you mentioned instagram which is also pretty interesting is that like you looking at specific pages for brands or are there certain accounts that you follow to learn about new brands yeah both erwan you know new season you know a lot of the west mothers moms I pay it, you know, everyone really, I like to pay attention, but also like, that's how I find a lot of like the really emerging brands and for local and Instagram, I kind of watch who's kind of vibing in Asheville and, you know, sometimes they want to do business with me. Sometimes they don't actually. And I'm, I'm following around going, you have the best vegan pastries I've ever seen. I need them. And she's like, I'm not ready for you. I'm like, I, I respect that. So yeah, it's, it's some of the hunter gather aspect that's fun for the job and it's connections, I think. And, you know, sometimes something looks really cool on Instagram and you walk in that restaurant and you're kind of like, eh, no, that was like a show. So that can happen too. But I think if you're putting the effort in, uh, you know, it's worth a look. That Wow, that's super interesting, actually. It never just kind of occurred to me that buyers are looking at pages from some of the other kind of tastemaker retailers to discover products. And also a quick shout out for our startup CPG Instagram. I hope you guys will follow it and everybody out there also. We have about, we have about 17,000 followers growing every day. Yeah. So awesome. And so then Mitch, fast forwarding to the point where they managed to get on your radar and now you guys are talking about a submission. What are you looking for from an early brand? Like, you know, a lot of us are, I mean, I know we should always look at it as an investment with you, but obviously, you know, we also have to be mindful of COGS. So what are the kind of like bare minimums that you look for? And what are the things that get you really excited when it's part of a submission that, you know, think will be really effective? Well, it's very wide ranging, right? So, I mean, for a super small emerging brand that we decide to champion, you know, don't tell people I'm saying this, but we may not ask for anything. We may support the promotion ourselves. I'm doing that right now for this brand I found, you know, at a farmer's market because they need it. and. It's also bring them in your store. You don't want them to fail, right? Like that's harder on an emerging brand. So you got to have a plan to help them. And then on the other side, if you talk to Zach, who's my, you know, grocery gate holder category manager, he's super busy, right? Like 
crazy, but, and Zach will tell you 24 weeks of promotions. I mean, everyone kind of knows that's what Zach would like. And he thinks that's what he needs to make your brand successful on our shelf. Now that's, you know, maybe a reach for a starting brand, an emerging brand. You got to think about your spend. That's better than a free fill, in my opinion. But, you know, UNFI, you may have to give a free fill. So you got to look at all those different things. Are are you hitting the price point that's going to make sense? How do you fund it? So I would say it's it's a real menu. And on the fresh side, it's kind of the wild, wild west, really. You come in and give us an offer, tell us you're going to go to all the stores and demo and cook it off. We may, that's good enough. Or, you know, if you're Applegate, you know, we're going to inspect everything. So brokers help. I used to not believe in brokers when I was a culinary only guy, but I've come to see their value. And like you said at the beginning, a lot of buyers work with certain brokers and really appreciate it. And they bring them a lot of value. So I would find out while you're looking at a retailer, who are those brokers that make sense? And sometimes they're they're just a Southeast broker that's going to give you better focus than an Acosta. Not that I don't, I like Acosta, but they're big. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Um, Clara, I'm interested to hear your perspective on, you know, what are some things that you've learned about like what you're putting into submissions and how you're talking to buyers about them? Maybe some, any lessons learned kind of along your journey. And I'll just share a quick one of mine, which is, I think I learned if you can build a relationship with a buyer, you actually can often ask them like, hey, help me out. You know, obviously they're talking to you, they're supportive of your product. You can often ask them like, like, please take pity on me. We're a small startup. What really is it going to take to get it done here? And you can kind of appeal to their compassionate side, which I know Mitch always has that compassion out and, and forward. But, you know, buyers have targets. They have a P&L that they're minding. But I think often if you ask them in a way, I think they will share with you like, all right, it's got to be not two case free refill, but half a case. I can do it. What do you think, Clara? Any Have you ever had that or any other lessons? <laughs> Yeah, everything's negotiable, right? And if you can make a buyer want you more than you want them, then you have the leverage. Everything is negotiable. I like to build in an ROI before I approach. So I know how many weeks of promotion, what it's going to cost me, when does it break even, you know, when do you turn it around? And really, I think building that relationship is not to be underestimated. I often say your network is your net worth and your ability to network <laughs> figure out, you know, will create a lot of value to you. I know people like to think networking is just socializing, but it couldn't be further from the truth. It's really, and networking from a place of what can I give first versus what can I take is where the most value gets created. You know, if you are helping as many people as you can, it's the laws of the world, right? The more you give, the more you receive. And any specific learnings, like I learned you can also ask the buyer, like, hey, what do you think are the best tactics if I have to prioritize more weeks on deal or that end cap? Like often they'll tell you, hey, that one display crushes it. You should definitely go for that. And you can set up your own tests. Like maybe you don't talk to the buyer, but you can do your own tests and you can start to learn, you know, that's kind of what Paul was saying, you know, like testing different merchandising strategies and test different things. Like don't be afraid to test. But yes, ask the buyer and then ask if there's any special end caps coming up that you could participate in, like whatever fits your brand, you know, like for me, Women's History Month, is there a Women's History Month something, you know, that we could participate in or any kind of special marketing that they're doing? Can we talk to your PR people and get on your social media? Can we cross promote? There's so many different out of the box ways, but it comes back to relationship and really having a good relationship with either your broker um, 
for you know your salespeople and the buyers. But if they can know you, and that's why trade shows are also important, because that's usually the only time I ever really speak to buyers in a very real way is at trade shows. Awesome. And I, I mean, I hopefully you don't mind me saying, I think just everybody also likes your personality a lot and is excited to see you. So I think probably trade shows, especially like, you know, hey, if you're somebody that does well in person, probably trade shows are going to work really well for you. Mm-hmm. So there may be something to be said for like also kind of knowing what your strengths are. I know other people who are just LinkedIn pros, uh, yeah. you know, and like they can crush it there. Cool. So um, I was also wondering, you know, you're so interested in all these emerging brands for Earthfair, despite all the brands that reach out to you, like what are some of the categories where you think really there's a big opportunity for innovation or there are holes, you know, where you, you just aren't seeing a lot of brands doing anything interesting or, you know, any products that you're yearning for? Well, and I got, I think, quoted on this one in the natural food merchandiser, but, you know, craft vegan is something I kind of coined and it's kind of where I feel like the vegan industry has gone, not industry, but, you know, beer, you had Budweiser, then you had craft beer. So I think we're at the inflection point now where there's some amazing craft, vegan, charcuterie, deli meats, cheeses, filled ravioli. I mean, this stuff gets me really excited because there was the first wave of kind of a big, more processed, more ingredients just a replacement not healthy and now we're getting some artisanal handcrafted page age so that's really exciting for me it's kind of my background so i love that we have some amazing ones in Asheville, dare vegan cheese no evil foods miso master is actually out of here so we're very lucky here i think also kind of claire pointed to it it's just like what's your cause what are you about what are you trying to help you know, it's, it's becoming really important, not just to be there for health and profit. Like, what are you solving as a CPG brand that can help me at my store? There's, you know, and there's all the new ones, right? Regeneration, upcycle, BIPOC. So there's a lot going on, but I think it's also back to the roots a little bit is like kind of what's old is new. Like value is really important right now. Help me move more cases in a more affordable way for my customers is really coming back. I mean, this is the year people are going to have to get on it after all the COVID surge and inflation surge we had. So you got to get, we're going to have to get creative, but I'm really excited about it. And I think, you know, there's just more customers out there to get. So, you know, we're big in grass fed beef. We do a lot of regenerative hickory nut gut meats is in our backyard who we kind of grew up with. That's going to continue to be a huge push, probably one of the biggest ones. Zach was just saying today, he's like, I had a regen end cap like two and a half years ago, and it didn't sell because no one knew about it. So sometimes it's like you're too far out almost, and you yeah. got to be careful. Same thing, like she meant we had a women's end cap, but we didn't have the distribution right. So, you know, there's a lot of good ideas that you really need to work backwards to make sure they're going to work. Makes sense. And in terms of the story that you see, when people get to the, the point where they get to pitch you on something and there's stuff in there, how much do you discount stuff? Or how do you look at when, you know, when we're telling you a story about, hey, check out our velocity in this one store, like, you know, a lot of brands have to advocate for their data, right? So they're picking, you know, one of their 
performing stores hmm. where they have the data, they're showing that to you. And, you know, if they're talking about like, you know, who buys our product, we don't have perfect data on that. Sometimes we're just really trying to feel it out or based on anecdotal sure. stuff, or, you know, we're figuring out. So like, how much do you care that it's exact first? Like, okay, I just got to, it fits the general story and feeling that I have about your brand. How do you interpret the stories that we tell you? <laughs> I think it's relationship driven, right? So it depends really. Like I can't give you an exact answer. Everyone's different, but for me, it's important, right? Like you want to know it's successful somewhere, you know, you got to start somewhere too. It's also almost what's more important for me is you've thought out your plan of kind of like you were saying at the beginning, okay, I'm going to start out of my car. Then I'm going to get a local distributor, or maybe I'm going to skip the local distributor and go to the medium and then I got a plan for UNFI. I'm going to hire a broker here. Like you have a plan, you know what you're doing. Especially important that you've been in our stores before you pitch us. You will learn so much. And, you know, it's almost rude not to. I know sometimes you can't. So I think that's really important. And, you know, we use spins, we use data. So we could find all that once you get to that level. So, that's not as important, you know, for emerging brands. So mm -hmm. the data is a little skewed at that yeah. point. Okay, thank you. Makes sense. And then we just have a few minutes left here. One interesting question that came in was, you know, when you're starting out, trade shows are expensive. What about just walking the show? Does that work? And so maybe Claire and I can give our perspectives about how to walk a show. And then I'd love to know from Mitch's perspective, how does it work when people are trying to get your attention if they're walking the show? So for me, yeah never have unlimited budget for all the shows. Well, I will walk the show, but I, I know who to look for. Um, if you don't know who to look for, you're going to be in trouble. If you haven't done the research all year to figure out who are the buyers that I'm looking for, or, I mean, if you're there and you see somebody who walks by who's from a retailer you like, I would at least just make sure you have the courage to go and say, hey, is your whatever buyer here? Is your snack buyer here? Because I actually have never had anyone say no to me if I just asked them that, like, hey, is your... Yeah, is your snack buyer here? Oh, what's their name? Okay, cool. I'll look out for them. And now you know, and you can write that down um, or get them to, you know, try your product and be like, great, can you tell them about it, please? Like text them a picture of it if you love it. That has worked for me. And then I also, you know, if you really need to go on the cheap, you might, maybe you have a friend who has a booth who will let you post up on a quarter um, and sort of just stand in one place. I actually prefer the approach of staying in one place rather than walking the whole show because everybody's walking the whole show. So you'll never see most people. But if you stay in one point on the stream, the whole world will pass you by at one point. So see if you can post up at a table or something with your product out and just try to fish the stream and grab people. Clara, what do you think? You know, what I did was the year before I launched, I volunteered my time to work a booth for a friend in exchange for a badge. And I went to the education stuff that Expo West did. And so that's an invaluable learning opportunity is to just help somebody else with their product, see the kind of questions they get. You'll be so much better equipped when you have your own booth the next year. You're not going there to sell your product. You're just going there to learn, to absorb, to help. Um, it's more in that spirit of give first and then go to the education things and you'll learn a lot. And that starts like before the show. And then, you know, there is a lot of value of walking the show in terms of like getting booth inspiration or what would you do if you had kind of like a dream um, and then I, yeah, I would agree. There's lots of good networking opportunities like cocktail parties and everything else, but out of respect, I mean, a lot of brands like will carry, you know, they call backpack, you know, trade shows, or they just like take their brands out of their backpack. And I know you have that, that cocktail party there that you do, Daniel, which is very well attended. So there's definitely opportunities beyond just being on the show floor. 
Yes. And always wear your swag and always have product and yeah. don't be afraid <laughs> to approach people. That's what you're there to do, right? What do you, Mitch, do you get approached by people a lot on the floor? Are there ways that people could do it kind of, uh, you know, with grace um, versus feeling stalked by people, just given everybody kind of wants to get into Earth Fair? Yeah, that's a tough one. It kind of depends, right? Like a lot of times I'm like, man, you got that in your backpack. It's kind of annoying. What about all these people that paid? Like you're stopping me in the middle. And then I take a step back and go, hey, you know, like you said, the empathy, uh, maybe I'll try to help this guy, at least talk to him. I'll grab a bar. Everyone's got a bar. So <laughs> congrats to Claire on winning in the bar category. It definitely <laughs> needs innovation. But on the other side, like if I'm on the dance floor and we're having fun or we're at a networking session and we meet and you got a product, that's probably a better chance for me to like pay attention and have a conversation and get to know somebody. But I will walk around. I try to stop it almost all the food booths, but I will, like you said, I will say, Hey, Jade and my buyers here, I'll send them around. And then, you know, I'll not shake hands and kiss babies, but I like to thank the brands. That's part of my reason for going to the show is thanking the brands for supporting us. Like, you know, that's how we all make it work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Really well said. And I mean, yeah, I, I like kind of what both of you guys were alluding to about, yeah, if you see a retailer is on a panel, go to that panel. And here, listen to what they say, because you'll get good tips and then go talk to them after. Then you have something to talk about with them when you message them on LinkedIn. It's, hey, thank you for those insights. I really listened to what you said. And, you know, I'd love to pitch you on my product, taking all of that into account. Yeah, especially, you know, when you're when you don't know a lot of the buyers yet and you're just starting out. I think I would fall into the category of use everything at your disposal to try to build those relationships. So we just have hit time here. Um, so I really just want to thank definitely everybody who attended. This was one of the better attended ones that we've had. I think this is a really great topic that we'll continue to explore. And thank you so much to Clara and Mitch, who were both on the panel that we did at Expo East on this topic. And each time we talk about it, I just learned so many new things from both of you guys. So congrats to Clara on all the success. And thank you so much, Mitch, for being you know, I think just one of the most supportive people in the industry for emerging brands. And you know, one of the people who has the power also to help us so much because of the platform that you guys have. So thank you to both of you guys and also Paul and who had to jump you. off. And thank you to you for creating pleasure. and holding this space for all these emerging brands, Danielle. It is so appreciated. Absolutely. All right, everyone, don't forget to follow us on our Instagram. There's a very good meme up there today. Yo, I think you guys are going to love it. Check it out. All right. Thank you, Mitch. Bye, Clara. Bye, everyone. Uh, Earth Fair has Bye. Instagram too. Yes, everyone follow the Earth Fair Instagram <laughs> also. <laughs> Discovering products. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, it would really help us out if you can leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am Daniel Scharf. I'm the host and founder of Startup CPG. Please feel free to reach out or add me on LinkedIn. If you're a potential sponsor that would like to appear on the podcast, please email partnerships at startupcpg.com. And reminder to all of you out there, we would love to have you join the community. You can sign up at our website, startupcpg.com, to learn about our webinars, events, and Slack channel. If you enjoyed today's music, you can check out my band. It's the Super Fantastics on Spotify Music. On behalf of the entire Startup CPG team, thank you so much for listening and your support. See you next time.